Welcome to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. This teaching is from the series A Father's Farewell, a study of the book of 2 Timothy. The book of 2 Timothy was written by the Apostle Paul to his spiritual son Timothy, and through him to all the sons and daughters of God. We hope this helps you understand and apply God's Word in your life today. Ah, now I'm, my voice is amplified. Um, we're going to be uh, looking at 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. As always, the verses will be up here on the screen. I'll be using the New International Version, and that's what's printed in your booklet. You can follow along in your Bible. I will be this morning a couple of times making reference to kind of what the Greek says, just to help us understand it a little bit better, uh, what the Lord wants to speak to us. So 2 Timothy chapter 2. The first seven verses. Hear now the word of your Lord, Master, and King. You then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things you've heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to reliable men who will also be qualified to teach others. Endure hardship with us like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No one serving as a soldier gets involved in civilian affairs. He wants to please his commanding officer. Similarly, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not receive the victor's crown unless he competes according to the rules. The hardworking farmer should be the first to receive a share of the crops. Reflect on what I am saying, for the Lord will give you insight into all of this. There was a book I first read about a few years ago. I haven't read the actual book, but I read the the story uh, of the man that's behind the book. And it's called The Secret Race Inside the Hidden World of the Tour de France. It's about a man named Tyler Hamilton. And when Tyler was young, his family loved sports. He was quite athletic. And the family actually had a day where the purpose of that day was to cheat in whatever game they were playing against one another. That was the only rule. You had to cheat in this game because the other 364 days of the year, it was mandatory no matter what else, you do not cheat. Integrity is primary. Well, Tyler went off to college, and he was actually a skier, uh, but he was in a bad accident skiing, and as part of his recovery, he started riding bikes, and the more he did that, he became very, very good at uh, being a biker after the injury, and he started to move up, and he became a great biker. In fact, he was becoming world-class, but Tyler started noticing something. He peaked, and he couldn't keep up with Lance Armstrong and the other guys on the team. But he also noticed they were all having little bags brought into them. And he started asking questions about what it was. And what Tyler discovered was, if you want to move to the very top level, you're going to have to cheat. You're going to have to do blood doping. You're going to have to take steroids. You're going to have to do what we say That's how you get to the top of this team. Now, Tyler had been brought up that cheating was the one thing you do not do. But Tyler wanted to win. 
And so he compromised, and he cheated. He was eventually caught up in the whole controversy as all of that swirled around and brought down Lance Armstrong and the rest of the team. But it not only destroyed his reputation, he lost his marriage, his family, many of his friends. Everything was destroyed because he cheated. Now, I bring that up because obviously we, we just read about a metaphor of athletes, and we're going to come back to it, but Paul's doing this for a reason. He's warning Timothy that there is a danger for you and me as followers of Christ Jesus, and that danger is that when the faith brings suffering, I cheat, and I compromise to avoid the suffering, because my goal becomes something other than being faithful to Jesus Christ. And Paul's warning Timothy about that in this text, which he's actually warning him about throughout the entire letter. So we're going to dig in and look at what that is so that the Lord can help us to make sure we don't become like Tyler. Now the first thing is, notice Paul begins here in this section, and this should not be a surprise to us, we should recognize even in the strongest calls, gospel and grace are always going to be first, they are going to be central, they are going to be primary throughout it. And so Paul tells Timothy, as he's given him this challenging call that we looked at last week in in chapter 1, verses 8 to 18, that you have to suffer along with us, he tells Timothy that, Timothy, to do this, you have to be strong through grace. So last week, as we looked at 1 Timothy 1, 8 to 18, there's such a strong note of suffering. And Paul says, all kinds of people have betrayed me. They've left. They've been unfaithful. And now he's going to turn to Timothy. And notice as he begins, he gets very tender for a moment with Timothy. I'm calling this whole series of fathers farewell because, remember, he began by calling Timothy his son. Well, he returns to that here in chapter 2, verse 1. He says, you then, my son... Now, this is not just, you know, why does Paul here suddenly bring back my son? Because he's giving Timothy a hard call. It's hard. None of us, I mean, if you like to suffer, you need counseling. Okay? We, we don't like it. And so he's telling Timothy you have to suffer, but he's coming back and he's saying, I want you to understand, I haven't forgotten, you are my son. I love you. That's why I'm telling you this truth. Timothy, you are my spiritual son, my disciple. I want you to understand the truth. And in fact, the, the sentence is very, very emphatic. There's ways you can emphasize things in Greek. They didn't have underlining and you know, quotation marks, but you can kind of really emphasize it. And the you then is very, very emphatic in the Greek. He's saying, look, in light of all I've said, I told you about Phygelus and Hermogenes, and they were unfaithful. I told you a lot of people in Asia had deserted me. They were unfaithful. Thankfully, Onesiphorus was a good example, but now I'm turning to you, Timothy. I'm telling you what you have to do. I'm making an appeal to you, but I'm doing it to you as my spiritual son. And he's reminding Timothy that he had told him in chapter 1 that Timothy had to guard the deposit, that he had to keep the gospel safe, that he had to be willing to suffer to be able to do that. And so how's Timothy going to do it? And the answer Paul gives is by grace. You then, my son, be strong, not in yourself, 
but in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Now this is the same point he made back, you remember at the beginning of the letter, in chapter 1, verse 6, he said, I want you to stir up the gift of God that is in you. Because God's not given us a, a spirit of fear and timidity that would shrink back in the face of battle, but rather he's given us the spirit of power. It's the same thing here. In chapter 1, verse 8, he said, I want you to join with me in suffering by the power of God. In chapter 1, verse 14, where he said, Timothy, you've got to guard the deposit, but I want you to guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives within us. Paul keeps driving back to this. Timothy, I'm not calling you to do something by your own strength, by your own resources. I'm telling you the only way you can do this is you have to be empowered by God. You have to grow strong in grace. And he, he so wants to emphasize this idea of being strong uh, through grace. I, I want to talk just a little bit. Forgive me, we're going to do a little bit of grammar here, okay? But it makes the point. And there's a, a few things to recognize. This is what's called a present middle passive imperative. Not important that you remember all that. But imperative means it's a command. It's not a suggestion. Not, Timothy, it might be okay if you did this or I'm doing it in passing. I am commanding you, Timothy. I am telling you, my son, you must strengthen yourself in the grace of God. But it's not a one-time thing. It's a present tense, which you could also say is a, a continuous tense. He doesn't say, Timothy, one time you got to go get that shot of grace. No, it's every day. Timothy, presently, moment by moment, you need grace. Yesterday's grace is not good for today's battle. You need to be strong in the grace of God every single day. And this is imperative for us as Christians. We must understand that our call always begins, is sustained by, and is completed by the grace of God. It is grace from first to last. You will never move beyond grace, nor will I. We simply cannot. The Christian life is one of grace. You know, this morning as we were singing those songs, okay, that God had, you know, uh, you remember the, the flames, left, I mean, the, the light shone forth, my chains fell off, and I rose and went up and followed you. And, you know, in the old Charles Wesley hymn, Arise, my soul, arise. And then we're singing Amazing Grace because our chains have been removed off. But that's not just a past thing. I need that grace today. I need the grace of God today. So the Christian life is actually a daily walk in the grace of God that's given to us in Christ Jesus. And if you are here or listening and you're an unbeliever, I, I want to state very clearly, please don't miss anything else I'm talking about today. I'm not giving you commands of nine things you must do to be a Christian. That, that's not what Christianity is. Christianity begins by the grace of God. We are called by the grace of God. We live by the grace of God. Everything is about grace. Now, there are changes that happen in my life, but those happen because grace is affecting me. Grace is changing me. And so if you are here and you do not know Christ, if you have never become a believer, I want to urge you, Christianity is not rules. It's not do's and don'ts. In fact, it's done. It's what Jesus has done for us. That's the faith. Don't mistake anything else and don't let 
Sometimes Christians aren't always doing a great job of communicating this. We can warp it and make it seem like I'm a Christian because I'm more moral than the next guy. Not really, especially if, if we know ourselves. We're not. That, that's not what it's about. It is the grace of God. So notice Paul then moves on. He says, so you've got to be strong in the grace that is found in Christ Jesus because it's not anywhere else. But here's why he's going to be strong. He's strong through grace to pass on the deposit. In verse 2, the things you've heard me say in the presence of many witnesses and trust to reliable men who will also be qualified to teach others. Remember in chapter 1, verse 13 and 14, Paul said, hey, Timothy, remember the sound pattern, the healthy teaching that I laid down. That's a good deposit. It's been given to you and you've got to guard it. Well, what Paul is now telling him is that, look, you got that sound deposit, uh, that, that sound teaching and that good deposit. There were other people around. They've got that. But to guard it is not to take it and bury it in the ground. You guard it by taking it and passing it on to other people who can take it and pass it on to other people. If you want to think in terms of the parable of Jesus, you don't you don't dig and put the treasure in the ground. You try and help it grow. You try and help it spread. And that's exactly what Paul is telling uh, Timothy here. So Timothy is being required not only to receive the sound pattern of teaching, not only to receive the good deposit of the gospel, but he is being told to guard it and then to pass it on to others. In fact, he's being told here that he's got to select other people who are going to be of the type of character that they will receive it, they will guard it, they will be strong in grace, they will be stirring up the gift of the Holy Spirit, and they will therefore faithfully pass it on to others as well. Now again, there's several things to pay attention here. This is also not a suggestion. This is an imperative. It's that same thing again. It's a command from the Apostle Paul to Timothy. You must pass this on. So when you're entrusting it, I'm commanding you to do this. And so it guarantees that the gospel is going to spread. It's going to spread in Timothy's own time because he's spreading it to others, but those others are being given the gospel and the deposit with the view to them spreading it to others as well, not only in their own time, but down through the generations. And thanks be to God that there have been believers who have done this. That's why you and I are here. The gospel has been faithfully handed down from generation to generation to generation. That's how it makes its way to us. Now, this certainly includes Timothy passing it on to faithful men who serve as elders in the church at Ephesus. Okay, There are some writers, they love to really look and say, Timothy's the pastor of the church at Ephesus. That word's not actually used of him. That's a later thing, and they want to make everything about Timothy's ordination and everything about leaders, and that's a wrong way to read this. But it is true that it is an essential that Timothy is to find other faithful men. There are people who are showing themselves unfaithful. Timothy had heard the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 20, the speech that Luke records. Paul had warned the elders in Ephesus, even from your own number. Men are going to arise, and rather than keeping the sound pattern of teaching, they're going to distort it. 
they're going to change it. And they're going to do it so that they can draw disciples after themselves. They're going to put themselves at the center rather than the gospel. And you've got to be warned against that. And Paul is here telling Timothy, you must do this with elders. So it is essential that any men who serve as elders must receive, guard, and pass on the faith unaltered. And if you study church history, what you're going to find is usually apostasy begins among the leaders. It just simply does. People who are just Everyday believers usually have common sense that they're like, something's not right about what that guy's saying. But the leaders start talking themselves into all kinds of foolishness. We have seen this again and again and again. They just announced recently the uh, Methodist church here in America is being split in half because many of the leaders in that church have compromised the gospel. They're teaching all kinds of other crazy stuff. They're not standing by the gospel. But when they actually called the Worldwide Methodist Communion together, all the just everyday believers came over and said, you can't do these things. We don't agree with that. We're not following you. So a huge part of the church here in America is wanting to pull aside. And that all started with the leaders. So it is imperative. I want to urge you, Wherever you go, whatever happens, and should you still be here after I am dead, always, always, always require that the people who are leading the church are first and foremost guarding the deposit of the gospel. It does not matter whatever gifts they've got. The American evangelical church is strewn with all kinds of people who have brought disrepute on Christ, disrepute on the gospel, because people said, well, but he's a good speaker. And he's got no character. He's not holding to it. He's trying to draw disciples to himself. It's all about him building his own brand. We're not here for a brand. We're here for Jesus. That's why we're here. Demand it. Do not ever submit to a group of leaders. Whatever else is going on, however big it's getting, how much buzz there is about it, it doesn't matter. If they are not faithful to the gospel, flee. Am I being clear? Okay. I, hold your leaders to that. And do not let people become leaders who will not hold to it. We're going to see later on, people want to get their ears tickled and all kinds of stuff. A true leader sticks to the Word of God. And if they don't, they've got nothing. Don't waste your time to listen to some dummy give you his own opinions and ideas. Preach the Word. Okay? So that's the first thing that is there. But it's not just church leaders. All believers have this responsibility. Jude tells us, you've been given the deposit of the faith. And you are responsible to take that, to guard it, to know it, to preach the gospel to yourself every day, to pass it on. If you are in a family, husbands and wives speaking it to one another. If you have children, passing it down to them. If you are a grandparent, the stage of life I'm at, sowing the gospel onto them, making sure that it goes. And that has nothing to do with just being a pastor. Okay? Long before I was an elder in the church, 
the, the day we found out Linda was pregnant with our first son, Tim, hands on her stomach and speaking the word of God over her. I was a Marine. I wasn't a pastor. I wasn't an elder. But I knew I'm going to speak the word of God from the moment I know that they've been conceived. We did that with every child. We were concerned to guard and pass on the deposit of the gospel. If I had not been doing that prior to becoming an elder, I should have never been made an elder in the first place. So this is Paul's point to Timothy, because the church can only thrive as it is daily strengthened by grace and labors to guard and pass on the precious deposit of the gospel to future generations. And friends, let me just say before we move on, especially this idea of grace, we live in a graceless world. We live in a cancel culture now. If you've ever made a mistake, you will never be forgiven. We need the church to rise up and speak the gospel. And in fact, rather than making excuses, say, you're right. I did say or do that, and I was wrong. And you don't know the half of it. You don't know what's in my heart. But there's grace that cleanses and forgives. That world is not going to preach grace. It never has wanted to, but we are in the midst of a graceless culture. Be strong in grace. Preach and proclaim it. Okay, that's enough preaching. Metaphors. Paul then moves on to some metaphors of Christian life and ministry. And notice in verses 3 to 7, Paul's got a key command, and then he's going to give three metaphors. Now, the key command, the NIV translates as endure hardship, and really it's endure hardship with us. And that's a good translation to, to get at the idea, but I want to point out that's the exact same verb. It's the exact same word that was used back in chapter 1, verse 8, where Paul said, join with us in suffering, okay? I want you to suffer along with us. It's the exact same word. The NIV, the reason they translated it, their translators understood it's the same word, but what they're saying is in all the metaphors, kind of what's common between a soldier and an athlete and a farmer is the hardship. You're enduring hardship. You're continuing on. So they've translated it that way, and that's okay, but I want you to be aware it's the same theme. If you're Timothy and you're reading it in Greek, you're going to pick up and say, oh, we're, we're right back where you first started in chapter 1, verse 8 where you were telling me to suffer along with you, you're saying the same thing now. This is the command that keeps coming back. Furthermore, notice that there are three metaphors, as I mentioned. They are the soldier, the athlete, and the farmer. Interestingly enough, Paul really likes these metaphors. He uses the same three in 1 Corinthians 9. He's making a different point in 1 Corinthians 9 because one of the things we're going to see this morning, metaphors can be used for a whole variety of things, which is why we have to reflect on them. But he's making these three metaphors, and what's key to all of them is that command. All of them, what they have in common is there is some sense of they're going to require suffering. They're going to require us to endure hardship. It's just inherent to the calling. You cannot be a good soldier. You cannot be a good athlete. You cannot be a good farmer if you're not willing to endure hardship, if you are not willing to suffer. But each of them also develop distinct ideas. So we're going we're gonna to kind of look at the, at the distinctions they make. And I want to begin this by reminding us, notice verse 7, Paul says, reflect on what I'm saying 
for the Lord will give you insight into all this. In the after hours uh, that will come out on Tuesday, I'm going to talk a little bit more about the need for meditation, the need for thinking deeply. We also live in a culture that wants everything at microwave speed. And you can't do that. It doesn't work. Okay? We have to reflect. We have to think. Paul's telling Timothy, you got to kind of take this and turn it around and look at it from different angles because the more you do, the more you'll learn. So each of these talk about suffering, but what do they bring out as well? Well, first Paul says, I want you to suffer with us like a good soldier of Christ Jesus or endure hardship with us like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. So first off, yes, a good soldier, a good Marine, has to endure hardship and suffering, okay? Paul's saying that's what's required, and he's, of course, using this as a metaphor to be a soldier for Christ Jesus. And so, but notice particularly, we can think that, you know, if you are in the military and you are training, there is physical rigor, there are physical difficulties, but Paul's not only talking about that. Notice what he develops is this sense of detachment that the soldier has to endure. He says if you're a good soldier of Christ Jesus, no one serving as a soldier gets involved in civilian affairs. Uh, It literally is, he doesn't get entangled with the practical affairs of this life, is what he says. The, The word is actually to get tangled up there. And he says that he does that, he has this sense of detachment from those things so that he can give his undivided attention to his commanding officer. It's literally the one who enlisted him, which is the way it worked in Rome. Your centurion would enlist you, and then he was your commanding officer, and your job was to make him happy. Your job was to do what he was telling you. And Paul's saying, so you can't have your attention in other places. Now, here's the interesting thing that we need to think through as we reflect on this. Are you and I called, as part of our calling as followers of Christ, are we called to be involved in the world around us? Yes. So here's the challenge. I could read this and say, then let's all go be a monk. But that's not what Paul is saying. What Paul is saying is, as you're going about and you're, you're engaging in your callings in the world, you can never let those callings start to eclipse your loyalty to Christ and to his kingdom. Because what happens if I'm serving in my calling and it starts to entangle me and then suddenly there's a price because this, this affair is going to require me to compromise on the gospel, which has my primary loyalty. See, and Paul says for a soldier it's clear, your loyalty is to your commanding officer. And so this is not a withdrawal from the world, but it is a statement that says we are so focused on pleasing Jesus that even when we're doing our calling out in the world, there's a sense of detachment from it enough that if that worldly calling that I'm doing, that Jesus has told me to do, if it requires compromise on the gospel, I will not do it. If I lose my job, I lose my job. If I lose my wealth, I lose my wealth. If I lose my position, I lose my position. Because what is first is pleasing my commanding officer. It'd be a whole lot harder to be told just go be a monk. I mean, a whole lot easier. The hard part is 
you and I are positively sent by Jesus into callings into this world, but we have to do it in such a way that there's enough detachment that when the crucible comes and suffering comes, I choose the kingdom and I will suffer. I don't choose the other affairs of this world. So that's the first thing he's saying. As a, as a good soldier of Jesus Christ who's called us into his service, we can never allow other pursuits to entangle us in such a way that we become unwilling to suffer their loss if loyalty to Christ, his kingdom, and the gospel would be compromised. We just simply have to say, no, then I lose that thing. If that's what's required for me to move up in the company, then I don't move up. If that's what's required for me to get this financial incentive, then I don't get that financial incentive. Whatever the cost is, Christ and his kingdom and the gospel are first. So that's the first metaphor. The second one is suffer to compete as an athlete for Christ. Now, Obviously, when we think of an athlete, we think of physical suffering. If you watch me run tomorrow morning and look at my face, you'll say, that is clearly physical suffering he's going through right now. That guy looks like he's dying out there, right? We've all seen that. When, I remember when I used to run in half marathons, and I was actually pretty decent back then. It would be pretty far up front, but I looked so bad, people would be cheering and saying, hey, number 2782, hang in there, buddy. You're going to make it. I'm not going to make it. I'm passing everybody. What are you talking about? But you could tell I was suffering like an athlete, okay? So there is that. But Paul's driving it even more than that. Because he says that if anyone competes as an athlete, he doesn't receive the victor's crown unless he competes according to the rules. And there's two possible ways or things Paul could be bringing up. Number one, in the Olympic Games, which is what he's talking about, before the Games, you had to go take an oath to Zeus that you promised you were going to go into 10 months of strict training. Physical training, dietary training, everything was going to be that I'm going to be ready as an athlete so that when the games come, I'm not going to go out there and lay an egg. I will be ready. There will be high-quality competition because I took an oath promising to do this 10 months. And if it was found out that you were cheating on the 10 months, you were out. You, you, you can't compete unless you have literally done the strict training. So that's one way he could be bringing it up. But what it certainly includes, it may even have both of these. I kind of think it includes both. But what it certainly includes is on the day of the competition, you can't cheat. You can't break the rules. You can't do what Tyler Hamilton and Lance Armstrong did and use banned substances, do doping in the trailer afterwards and get in the blood pump. You're not allowed to do that. That's cheating. And if you cheat, Paul says, you will not receive the victor's crown. But let's notice, let's reflect, what does this mean for me as a Christian? Well, see, we have an oath of loyalty. We've promised to undergo training. We've promised to suffer with other believers as an athlete. But what that means is I can't cheat by getting out of the suffering. I can't do that. See, every once in a while, you know, they'll catch some guy that he starts running in a marathon or something, and then he actually takes a shortcut and then kind of zips into the crowd later in the race because I'm trying to get out of the suffering because 
running all that distance is too hard, but I want to look like I did it, but I cheat. And Paul says, Timothy, you can't do that. As an athlete of Christ Jesus, you compete according to the rules, and here's the rule. You're going to suffer. It's just part of being a Christian. The culture is going to pressure you. They are going to stand against you. They are going to come and try and get you to compromise. But if you compromise, you've broken the rule. And if you break the rule, you don't win the victor's crown. So to try and get a Christian life free of suffering would be to violate the rules, and it's actually to forfeit the prize. To be a Christian and be ashamed of the gospel Remember Paul's warnings last week. Or to compromise to avoid suffering is like an athlete using steroids or cheating in other ways. It may appear that I'm winning the race, but I'm not. I'm just a cheater, and I've been disqualified for the prize. And see, the thing about it was, you know, if if we go back to my intro, Lance Armstrong kept telling everybody, I'm going through all the tests, and he was. Seven years in a row, he won the Tour de France, and he never got caught, never got caught once. But then finally it broke, and his teammates came out and said, okay, here's how we were doing it. (laughs) We had this elaborate setup that was going on because we were always, we we were winning big money, so we had better paid doctors than they had testing us. We had helping us beat the test. But our judge is not fooled. He, he doesn't need a test like that. He knows, and he knows immediately. So we cannot cheat uh, in our race. Now, athletes, this is another thing that comes out. You remember, we had the soldier, but another aspect that comes out with athletes is what keeps the athlete going, how they find endurance to suffer, is they are looking forward to the victor's crown. Okay, in a way that doesn't quite apply with the soldier, they're looking forward to the victor's crown. And Paul brings this up in 1 Corinthians 9. As I mentioned, he had all the metaphors, but notice how he brings out the athlete. Paul says, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. And then listen to this. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. That's that they had to do their vow to do 10 months training, they had to do that. They do it to get a crown that will not last. They literally were given a bit of laurel branch that was fashioned into a crown, and they put it on your head, and a few weeks later, it's rotted away. And Paul says they do all of this training, they endure all of this suffering to get a little piece of a plant stuck on their head. But we do it to get a crown that will last for ever. Therefore, I do not run like a man uh, running aimlessly. I do not fight like a man beating the air. No, I beat my body and make it my slave so that after I preach to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. So as an athlete for Christ Jesus, what we're doing is we're realizing we are getting the eternal reward. How is it that we can endure the hardship? How is it that I'm willing to do what's required, even if it costs me in my career, even if it costs me in my reputation, even if people start saying nasty things and writing bad blog posts about it, how do I do it? Because I'm not after that crown. 
I'm after the crown that's in the hands of Jesus Christ, that he's going to award to me on that day. We're going to see Paul later on is going to say, I have fought the fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith, and now there's in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord is going to give to me on that day. Okay, that's what we are running for. So we endure for the eternal victor's crown. And therefore, Paul's saying, we should be willing to endure anything because it is a crown worthy for us. Then the last thing is, labor hard like a farmer looking forward to a harvest. And we'll do this one a little shorter and go into applying the word. Notice in verse 6, he says, the hardworking farmer should be a first to receive a share of the crop. So he's kind of giving that future reference there. The reward is really coming to the forefront now. A farmer has to endure long hours, beginning in the cool, wet spring, through the long, hot, dry days of summer, all the way looking forward until the harvest comes. It's a whole variety of problems and struggles, but the farmer has to be out day after day after day. They start before the sun goes up. They're working until the sun goes down through all of these kinds of things, looking forward to the crop. And Paul's telling us, reflect, think, that's exactly what we're doing. But we're not looking forward to a temporal harvest that we eat. We're looking forward to an eternal harvest. And so, like the farmer and like the athlete, we're being told the suffering is hard. But when you're out there and it is hot and it is dry and you're having to lug buckets of water out to keep the plants alive, remember it'll be worth it when harvest comes. That's what keeps the farmer going. And Paul's saying, Timothy, you've got to remind yourself of the same thing. So how do we apply the word? And this is going to be fairly short today and we'll come to the Lord's table. Two questions. Number one, just a general, do I see that the normal Christian life involves suffering? Last week I mentioned that when I was speaking to, you know, when I was away at the board retreat for International Christian Concern, the persecuted church ministry, I spoke on the normal Christian life. Out of this book, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It's not the unusual Christian life, it is the normal Christian life. It's the message of 1 Timothy 1, 8 to 18, here in chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. We're going to see he's going to pick it up again in chapter 3, and it'll be there in chapter 4. It is a key theme in the entire book. So the only way, remember Paul said, if you want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, you will be persecuted. Not a possibility, it's a promise. And there's only one way out, cheat, compromise. That's the only way out of doing it. But to avoid uh, suffering uh, is to turn us into a cowardly soldier, a cheating athlete, a lazy farmer. And they don't win. If you are a cowardly soldier, you die on the day of battle. If you are a cheating athlete, you eventually get caught and you lose. And if you are a lazy farmer, you're going to starve come the wintertime. That's what Paul's telling us. So the only way that we can avoid suffering is to be like Tyler Hamilton, Lance Armstrong, and the other guys. is to cheat. 
but we're not allowed to do that. We cannot do it. So let me say this very clearly. Do not be deceived. There was a book a few years ago that was very, very popular. It was like a New York Times bestseller. And it was an appeal to come to Christianity and get your best life now. That's gibberish. If I wanted my best life now, Christianity's not how to find it. Christianity promises you suffering. And unless you have mental problems, that's not a, we don't like that. Okay? Christianity is your best life for eternity, which is the one that matters. Okay? There is all kinds of pressure out there telling us and trying to sell this stuff like snake oil and somehow get around this. Tell Daniel, best life now. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Tell Job, best life now. Tell Paul, who's writing the final words he's ever going to write before he's martyred. It's just not true. Okay? And we best own up to that. Now, if you're hearing me and you're not a follower of Jesus, I want to urge you, this is not a thing, stay away. What I'm telling you is, it is absolutely worth it. Because life is short, eternity is not just long, it's endless. Okay? The reason when, you know, an athlete goes into training and you do that suffering that you're doing is they're envisioning in their mind, when I cross the finish line and I've won, and it's worth every bit of suffering that I had to go through. Friends, our finish line isn't just for a split second and there's a little nice photo of it. Our finish line is eternal. It is worth it. So if you have never looked to Christ, I urge you, what your soul was made for, what you were created to do is to walk with God. That's why you're here. That's why I'm here, to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. I urge you to come, but remember, when you do, the world does not applaud that. It just simply doesn't. And I again suspect it's going to applaud it less and less and less in the future. That's just probably what's, barring the third great awakening, which I'm praying for, but I suspect for my kids and my grandkids, it's going to get harder and harder and harder. Now, second question, and we come to the Lord's table. Am I drawing strength from God daily so that I can suffer faithfully? Because this is not. See, when I was a young mid at the academy, or when I was a young Marine, I tended to skip over the part about the grace there in verse 1. And we challenged each other, and it was all about, dude, do you have it in you to suffer? It's better to sweat in peace than bleed in war. That's not how this passage tells me to do it. Okay? We have to draw strength daily. That's why Paul begins with, you got to be strong in the grace of God. And then he ends this section with, reflect on what I'm saying, for the Lord will give you insight. The strength does not come from Timothy, it comes from grace. Understanding to keep this before his eyes does not come from Timothy, it comes from the Lord. And so we don't do it in our own strength, but only as we receive fresh grace, uh, fresh strength from drawing upon God's grace each day. Remember, it's every day. 
be, be strong moment by moment by moment. Now, and I want you to think for a moment again as we're reflecting on this. See, the success of the soldier, the athlete, and the farmer are not determined at that last moment. If the farmer hasn't done the long, hard labor through the spring and summer, what happens in the fall? There's no crop. doesn't matter how good he is at harvesting. It was the day by day by day by day. If an athlete, see, we would all love in that moment when we watch somebody get the gold medal, I mean, come on, admit it. It's like, man, I would love, what would it be like to be there and get that? You know what it would be like? Getting up at 4 o'clock in the morning and training for hours and hours and hours when no one is watching. And if you don't do that, you don't get this, which is why most of us are watching it rather than doing it, right? Okay, see? And it's the same way in the Christian life. Your success and mine is not determined in the moment of the crucible. It's day by day by day when nobody's looking. Am I in the Word of God every day? This is a challenge for everyone. Look, it would be easy for me to be a professional Christian. This is what I do for a living. So the question is, tomorrow, will Brett wake up and have a quiet time and hear from Jesus and walk with Jesus and draw strength from Jesus on things that have nothing to do with what's going to happen next Sunday? And if the answer to that question is no, I'm in trouble. Are we drawing strength every day to meditate on it? Uh, to ask the Lord to give us insight to help us do it. So, um, and as we're doing that, and we'll come back to this in future weeks, that's going to include a significant focus on eternity. Again, one of the problems in our culture, it's not only graceless in our culture, it's not only, you know, putting down any kind of suffering or hardship. We want it easy. There's got to be a pill that I can take to do this for me. But we also, in our culture, it's all about now. All of which are training you and I in the exact wrong way. We have to be thinking about eternity. It's long game. But what's going to happen is, if you do that in your quiet time tomorrow, and you say, Lord, I'm reflecting on this, help me think, help me have an eternal perspective, you're going to get up from your quiet time, walk out of your closet, so to speak, and what's the world going to start saying? It's all about now. It's about now. It's about now. It's about now. Keep your attention on what's happening now. Don't worry about tomorrow. Look at right now. And they're going to do it all day long. So how often do I have to get my mind reprogrammed by the Holy Spirit? Every day. I need you to reorient. That's not about now. It's about eternity. So ask the Lord to do that. Now, we're going to come down to the table of grace here because we have to draw every day from the Lord's grace, and we gather each week to corporately draw from the Lord's grace, and then we come here to the table to ask the Lord to feed us and to minister to us. And let me be clear, apart from faith, I can read my Bible every day and do nothing but just read a book. And I can come here and Songs are being sung, and they're expressing great truth, and I'm just watching other people sing songs. And we can come to this table, and I can say that was a small piece of bread and a little bit of juice. But we can come by faith, 
And we can trust that the Holy Spirit wants to meet us here so that I am fed with the grace of God. So what we're going to do is I'm going to read a little bit from 2 Timothy chapter 1. And then we're going to take just a minute to slow down and to meditate on who this God is that we are being called to. And then we will come to the table. So brothers and sisters, let the Spirit lift your gaze to God who has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of His own purpose and grace. I remind you this grace was given to us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. But it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Consider the God in whom you have believed and let the Spirit stir up the conviction that He is able to guard you and everything you have entrusted to Him until that final day. Meditate for a moment on who that God is, and then we'll come to the table. What I receive from the Lord, I pass on to you. That The Lord Jesus, on the night He was betrayed, took bread, and when He given thanks, He broke it. He said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And the same way after supper, he took the cup. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out so that your sins may be forgiven. Drink from this, all of you, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Brothers and sisters, take the Pack it and open up for the bread, and we will take the Lord's body together. Father, you are the fount and source of life. You are eternal, self-existent, and self-sufficient, while we are temporal and unable to exist for even a moment on our own. This bread reminds us that we even have to take food from outside ourselves to even live. But it also reminds us that we do not live by physical bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. So we come to this table confessing our weakness, our sin, our needs, and we look to you to feed and sustain us in body and soul. And Lord, we give you thanks that you have given us the true eternal bread, Jesus Christ our Lord, the eternal word made flesh. Brothers and sisters, take and eat. Lord Jesus, 
We were chosen in you before time began and given grace rather than the judgment we deserve. And in the fullness of time, you came and destroyed death. For by your own death and resurrection, you have given us life and immortality. And so we thank you for your blood, which purifies us from all sin, seals our covenant with the Father, and gives us eternal life as the people of God. We say thanks for the blood of Christ. Brothers and sisters, take and drink. Let's stand together, and we're going to uh, pray. I will conclude by praying, as we do each week, to the Holy Spirit and asking Him to work in us as we go forth, and then we'll have the benediction. Holy Spirit, we thank you for revealing the Father and the Son to us and for meeting us at this table so that it is not mere ritual, but a means of grace and strength. And so, Spirit of God, we ask that you would meet us each day this week. Open the Word of God so that we might hear the voice of the Father. Reveal to us the glories of our Lord Jesus Christ. Guide us so that we would walk in the ways of God. And strengthen us so that we might shun sin and serve others around us. O Holy Spirit, make us strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus, renewing us day by day, transforming us from one degree of glory to another, and ever making us more like our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. Stir that desire up in us, O Holy Spirit, and then come what may, we will walk with you. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, brothers and sisters, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. You are blessed. Go forth and be a blessing. Amen. Thank you for listening to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. For more teachings and resources, please visit www.brcc.church.